Join everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked, and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specs and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Yof Zero. In this episode, we focus on a topic that is somehow always in fashion, but it seems no one figured out just yet, authorization. Today, we are chatting with David Brossard, Senior Director of Identity Product Management at Salesforce, and the closest thing to an authorization veteran you can find. Welcome, David. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Thanks for joining me today. It's a long-standing tradition of Identity Unlocked to start every episode with a story of how our guest ended up working in identity. David, what's your story? How did you end up working in identity and in particular, authorization? So I actually didn't start in identity, not even in security. I did not even know what IT security was to begin with. I did a student placement in the UK back in 2003 and that was at British Telecom in one of their labs. And I was focusing on natural language processing, which is what I liked the most at the time. And then when I came back the following summer, that lab didn't exist anymore, but they had positions in security, in SOA security. SOA was the fashionable term back in the day, right? Services-oriented architecture. After the placement, went back to university and then went back for a permanent position at VT and worked on SOA security for five years, doing R&D, working with protocols like SAML, ZACML, Beeple, WS Trust, WS Federation, one of your favorite ones, so on and nice. so forth. So the whole nine yards of WS Star. You know that my license plate is still WS Star, right? My car says nice. WS Star still today. Well, not that nice, but it's a reminder of uh, no protocol lasts forever. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of the WS Death Star, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. So after that, I, I hopped onto a uh, startup that focused on authorization only, and that was Axiomatics. I was there for 10 years, one of the early people in the team. I was actually an early customer of Axiomatics before joining Axiomatics. Did a lot of fun stuff, worked a lot with customers, worked a lot with Oasis, the uh, standards organization, worked with NIST, had a lot of fun. And then 10 years on, I was like, well, maybe I should see what other standards and technologies there are in the identity realm. And that got me to Salesforce, where I focus more on identity standards, things like OpenID Connect, OAuth, and even SAML, as a matter of fact. And that's me. Fantastic. That's such a great trajectory. And only the geekiest of the geeks would say that <laughs> this was fun, but of course, that fits the character. So great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you clearly are one of the best people for talking about authorization and standards, especially from what you just said so far. But before we dig into the standards, let's just talk about authorization in general. So what is it and what makes it so hard to capture it in standard form? There's a few different reasons why people struggle to understand what it is. First of all, there's a bit of a misnomer. Oftentimes people will think that when you authenticate, you authorize. So there's this conflation of two ideas that authentication equates authorization and vice versa, which of course isn't the case. Authentication is about you know proving something about yourself. 
I like to say it's proving something about yourself more than proving who you are, because you might just want to prove that you're 21 years of age. It doesn't really matter who you are. What matters is that you're 21. That's authentication, authenticating a claim essentially about yourself, usually your identity, right? But even then, you know, take an extreme case. When you go through borders, they're not really looking at the fact that you're Vittorio. They're just making sure that you're not on a blacklist of sorts because you did something bad in a past life that we're not going to disclose on this podcast and you're not allowed to go through customs anymore. Um, hypothetical example. So authorization, however, focuses on once we know what it is you represent, once we know who you are, authorization will let you determine what you can or can't do. It's both things you're allowed to do, positive cases, but also things you're not allowed to do. And you were asking why it's so hard to crack that nut. Why is it so much easier, relatively easier to do SAML and, and all the identity protocols instead of authorization. I think it's partly because identity and authentication resides entirely in the hands of the identity teams. Okay, it's easy to concentrate into one side of an equation, whereas authorization is a mixture of who you are, so identity information, but also what it is you're trying to get access to. So now you're entering the realm of the application and the application data model and all the data that resides behind that. And it's also potentially contextual information, right? You know, what time of day it is, where you are, so on and so forth. So because authorization is built on these three different things, it makes it harder to solve because you're going to have to involve multiple teams within the same company and coordinate those teams to, to be able to define the authorization and, and achieve what it is you want to do. That's interesting. So you are saying that the authentication is something that is prone to be centralized. But authorization is always an emerging phenomena, and you listed some uh, of the things that determine what the uh, authorization will uh, will do. That's uh, that's such an interesting uh, and concise way of putting it. Fantastic, great. So let's dig even deeper. Are there common types of authorization that uh, one is more likely to encounter that would require uh, them to be handled differently? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and authorization is definitely a soup of a lot of acronyms and different authorization types. But there's, if you wanted to simplify it, there's essentially three main types. The very first type of authorization that, that you know, predates us both uh, going back to the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s when we're developing operating systems is, of course, access control lists, right? Being able to define an item, an object, typically a file, and then on that file you say, hey, Joe can access that file. The second type that emerged around the 90s, um, 1992, I think, is when we see the first traces of, of, that, new, of that model is RBAC, or Role-Based Access Control, so RBAC. And RBAC was born out of necessity. The realization back in the 90s was that ACLs were great. They were extremely fine-grained because you could literally say, here's an item, here's a person, boom, they can do read, write, or, or delete, you know, the typical actions you can do but it was really hard to manage, okay? So role-based access control is here to provide a framework to make the management of authorization simpler, to define a, a, the notion of a, of a role that you can assign people to, the notion of a group that you can assign people to, and also with roles and groups, define hierarchies between those roles so that you can have inheritance between the roles so that you can say, oh, if role A can do this and role B inherits from role A, then role B can do everything that role A can do. That made the management of authorization simpler. But both in the case of ACLs and in the case of RBAC, you're very much identity-centric. 
all you're looking at is the uh, user and what they represent, who they are, and you assign them to a role, you assign them to a group. So it's very one-sided. A new model that emerged, actually that emerged a long time ago as well, but that really matured around the 2010s is ABAC or attribute-based access control. So both RBAC and ABAC are models defined by NIST. Um, and I keep forgetting what the acronym stands for, but I think it's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, if I'm not mistaken, or, or Science and Technology. We'll find out. We'll ask Google before publishing the episode. Exactly. So I don't look like an idiot. So NIST started formalizing RBAC in the, in the 90s and formalized it in early 2000 and then did the same with ABAC in 2013 or 2010, 2013, I think. Huh. I thought that the MIT or Stanford had some role in that as well. The, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a very good point. So this is interesting what you're saying, Vittorio, because it's hard to go back to the one original source of the model. So ABAC was formalized by NIST in 2013, but the, the model is not their invention. I mean, there's something called FGAC, fine-grained access control, which is a form of ABAC that was developed for databases back in the early 2000s. So you can always go back to a previous model that looks very much like ABAC. And ABAC isn't rocket science at the end of the day. It's just realizing that you have identity data on the one hand, you have application data or application processes on the other, and you want to be able to control access to the processes and the data by using attributes or metadata about the user and about the objects and about the resources and about the applications. So the formalization of the term ABAC is 2013. Is there a model before that? Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm sure there's more than one. Yeah, I remember like when we were uh, playing with uh, WSTAR and Cardspace that uh, making decisions based on the claims inside the tokens we were sending mm. with those uh, claims uh, not being only roles, like of course you could use those to carrying roles, but you could also carry any attribute. And so, and if you could make decisions based on those attributes that uh, turned into authorization decisions, then you could do it. But we, yes, we didn't call it a bug back in the day. Yep, neither did we. One of the projects I did R&D on was a project called Trustcom. And this is where we used a mixture of ZACMOL, SAML, we had an STS that was actually built by Microsoft back in the day, so a security token service. And what that STS would do is, uh, you know, you would give it a username and password, it would return a SAML token on the issuing side. On the validating side, it would receive a SAML token and say, yes, the, the user is who they say they are. And like you said, inside of that SAML token, you could have claims or assertions that describe the user. And then what you would do is you would send those claims to a policy decision point and get a decision from that policy decision point. And I'm already mentioning terms like PDP, right? So ABAC formalizes those terms in the NIST spec, but of course, they're not invented by the spec. They're really old. PDP existed in the ZACMOL spec, which is older than ABAC. And, and of course, PDP was mentioned, I think, in, in network access control specs way back in the 70s and 80s that definitely predate uh, ABAC and, and ZACMOL. Huh. Now we are starting to get into the acronym SALAD. So let's take a step back. So before going further, I heard uh, you listing three different types of authorization. Yep. You mentioned ACLs, you mentioned AirBuck, and you mentioned ABUC. Correct. Great, perfect. Uh, I remember a panel at one of the last impacts on the Gartner's uh, AIIM before the disaster hit. And I remember that at the panel there was someone from Microsoft, someone from uh, uh, AWS, and someone from Google. And one of them was saying that uh, they 
all for all their role, their role uh, airbag, basically they were saying something like a, a crazy number, like 90% of the roles defined were actually never used at runtime. And that's why they were suggesting to go toward a buck. Before we move to the actual specs, do, do you want to comment on that? Oh, for sure. So there's a couple of different things. I guess you could rephrase your your comment with the following question. Why do ABAC? Why not just stick to RBAC if RBAC works well? Well, with RBAC, you get a lot of management pain. With RBAC, you get role explosion as well. To be able to cater to all the new scenarios, you have to invent new roles. And those roles eventually either get used and then forgotten and then dropped or never get used, like you said. I had some metrics from, from customers in my previous life where they ended up having 10 times as many roles as they did employees. And wow. that's just, you know, that's an indication that they were trying to solve for an authorization challenge and they were not doing maintenance on the roles. Because what happens is the following. You have a company, say a bank, and they develop one app. So the app developers will go to the central IT team responsible for identity, the LDAP team, if you will. And they'll say, hey, create me role A, role B, role C. And because there's no good governance or there was no good governance on the role creation, the role maintenance, the role provisioning, the role deprovisioning, you end up with more and more roles. And then oftentimes what will happen is application one needed a role to do this much, you know, a sliver of functionality. And then application B comes along and says, well, we need this thing plus a little bit more, but not that little bit. So it ends up creating yet another role that is like 95% the same thing as the previous role, but not quite the same. So that's kind of the mess that RBAC put us in. RBAC is definitely good. You need it, right? It's not going away. I'm not saying it's going to go away, but there's definitely management issues and granularity issues that you have with RBAC that ABAC is trying to solve. Fantastic. Super insightful. We'll get back to it uh, as soon as we do our little historical detour. So you name dropped XAML and XAML and similar. So if we were to go back in time as far as your memory goes and start from there, what are like the main uh, attempts at formalizing authorization in standards? Yeah, the main main one, of course, is XAML, XACML. And it dates back to 2001. So it dates back to what I call the, the SOA craze, the uh, services-oriented architecture craze, where you had two camps. You had the W3 camp that were developing a lot of the WS standards. And you had the OASIS camp developing a lot of the um, uh, SAML and XAML and... and uh, other standards in that category. And SAML was seen as the, the new federation protocol and ZACML was like the little brother seen as the authorization protocol that was being invented. Uh, but before ZACML, there were other attempts. One was called SECPAL, S-E-C-P-A-L, that was developed, I think, by a couple of universities in the UK, if I remember correctly. There were industry-specific or vendor-specific attempts a little later, Microsoft had something called SDDL, for instance, that came in Windows Server 2012, if I'm not mistaken. So there were different attempts. More recently, in the industry, there have been things like Open Policy Agent and Rego, the language for Open Policy Agent. You have things like um, OSO and their language, I think called Polar, if I'm not mistaken, for authorization. So these are more recent attempts. And then in so the middle... So before we go all the yep. way to the uh, current... Let's go back for a moment with SACML, mostly because uh, you mentioned that uh, it defined some of the artifacts that yes. then we also use uh, elsewhere, like uh, some of the concepts that we define in there, even if you don't follow SACML as is, 
but you still use the same library PDPs and stuff like that. Can you expand on it on like a, what did the XACM try to, to define? What yeah. artifacts did it introduce? Very good point. So XACML ended up defining an architecture with the components, so we can get back to them in a minute. It ended up defining a policy language and it ended up defining a request response protocol. Okay. Now the architecture, like you said, and like I mentioned before, although XACML does define it, it actually steals from other ideas, mainly in the network access control space uh, way back when. And the building blocks you'll find in the architecture are the PDP, the policy decision point. So that's kind of like the engine in the architecture. The PAP, the policy authoring or the policy administration point, which is where you manage your policies. The PIP, the policy information point, which is a, an interface through which you can fetch missing data that you need for decision making. For instance, if you're asking, hey, can Vittorio drink? The question you're going to ask the PIP is, what is the date of birth, Vittorio's date of birth, right? The last component I didn't mention is the PEP, the policy enforcement point. The enforcement point is responsible for enforcing the decision. So it's the, the integration, the glue, if you will, between the application or the process you're trying to protect and the decision point, the policy decision point. Well, that sounds very comprehensive. Like as in uh, all the functions that you described seem to need to have a counterpart in uh, any architecture that needs to do authorization. So they gave us nice uh, terms Although we might actually end up not using exactly their protocols uh, and uh, the exact messages that they <laughs> described. So basically, like uh, XACML is one of those things that everyone knows what it is. But as far as I know, very few people actually implement it. So is it true? Is it in line with your experience? And if yes, uh, what went wrong there? It's a good question. So it's definitely not as popular as I would like it to be as I would have liked it to be anyway. Part of the issue is that authorization was just hard to implement. And at least in my tenure, you know, from 2010 to 2020, roughly, people were still struggling a lot with identity challenges. And if you don't have a mature identity architecture, it's going to be hard to move to the authorization phase. You have to have a good, clean identity basis in order to be able to implement authorization. But putting that aside... There's a lot of challenges because what you do, if you compare RBAC and ABAC, for instance, RBAC, you can read from your LDAP. Everyone knows how to read LDAP, okay? It's not a sexy protocol, but everyone knows it, right? So if you're building an app and you're told, oh, you can either consume roles from the LDAP or you're going to have to write an enforcement point and write policies that you have to store in a policy decision point, well, it seems like the RBAC approach is kind of like an easier way to tackle authorization, although it won't do everything you need to do. So a lot of, a lot of the challenges that Zachmo was facing or, or has been facing is educating developers, showing developers how they can easily decouple the authorization from their apps, stop relying exclusively on roles, show them how instead of just doing roles, they can do policies and then, you know, they can get the benefits. They can leverage, start leveraging Zachmol or Open Policy Agent or Polar if you look at, at the newer languages. I think there is a steeper learning curve with ABAC and Zachmol because it requires more things to be put in place than there is with RBAC. There's a couple other differences, Vittorio, by the way, that I forgot to mention. You know, I, we said that 
there's ACLs, ACLs, there's RBAC, there's ABAC. They're not all directly comparable. Although they're all authorization models, if you will, ACLs and RBAC, they're what I call design time authorization frameworks, where the authorization has been decided at the creation of the file or at the creation of the user, typically. And then as you evolve throughout the lifetime of the employee, for instance, you're going to add and remove roles from that employee. But that happens every month or every year. It depends on what you do. Zachmull is a runtime authorization model where every single time you're attempting to do something, there and then we're going to check whether you're allowed. That also makes it potentially a little harder to implement, or at least it requires a, a different mindset. If you're used to working with RBAC, then you, you're going to have to start thinking differently to be able to leverage ABAC and Zachmull and OPA and all the other ABAC implementations. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I find it fascinating what you said about uh, educating developers about extracting authorization from their code and actually relying on an external engine. And I'd say that today, that's a pretty well-established meme. Like, uh, it seems that people expect to be able to do these through gateways or through edge services, through engines and similar. So if we were to leave uh, Xacomel a bit behind and look at what's uh, popular today, what would you say are the most popular approaches to authorization that you can think of? Yeah. So one thing that happened five years or so ago is essentially APIs matured to a point that they became microservices, right? And applications that once were one big app were broken down into smaller applications becoming those microservices, okay? And Kubernetes became a thing and Docker became a thing. And what that meant is that we had a lot of interfaces where suddenly we had an opportunity to control what was going in and what was going out more easily. And therefore, we had an opportunity to do authorization, a much more fine-grained authorization. And in came a company called Styra, S-T-Y-R-A, and a standard that they invented called OPA, Open Policy Agent. Actually, to be more specific, Open Policy Agent refers to their decision engine, and then Rego, R-E-G-O, refers to the language you use to configure the language. And I think, you know, if, if you wanted to compare um, Zachbull and, and Rego, they're more or less at a very high level comparable in terms of language functionality. What's interesting, though, is that Oasis and Zachmull were created kind of with enterprise in mind. And what I mean by that, you know, backed by large companies like Oracle, so on and so forth. Whereas Open Policy Agent is way more pragmatic. They were like, oh, we have an issue in Kubernetes. We have an issue with infrastructure. We have an issue with microservices. Let's find a way to address that from within that particular realm, from within CNCF, right? And that's kind of what happened, which helps with adoption, with developer adoption, because it was not created within a vacuum. It was created for the developer, by the developer, within that space. And that's kind of like today, if you look at microservices and if you look at authorization as a whole, if you Google authorization, you're more likely to find stuff on Open Policy Agent than you would on Zachwell because they started from the developer challenge. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Yes, that's great. And so let's say that... the. Like there is like a growing uh, interest in this space, mostly because uh, with the proliferation of things like microservices yep. and similar, the cottage industry version of these, as in like uh, writing code in your methods for dealing with it, becomes uh, unsustainable, uh, very hard to manage. Uh, so it's understandable that uh, this thing is uh, um, being so popular. 
So now, just to go left field for a second, one of the recurrent protagonists of Identity Unlocked is Off and its derivatives. And Off famously has authorization in the name. But we had almost did the entire episode without mentioning Off. So how would you explain this paradox? Yeah, so you make me think that I forgot to mention something else. Zachmul and attribute-based access control and role-based access control, and I'll stop there. I'm not going to talk about ACLs. They tend to be enterprise-driven, enterprise-defined authorization, where someone in the enterprise is going to say, this is what's going to happen, and this is how it is, okay? ACLs could be user-defined. So there's another standard that I forgot to mention, you know, along with OAuth, and that's UMA, um, user-managed access. So that's another authorization standard. <laughs> I had to bring it up, if only for Eve. So these are really interesting standards because they do try to address authorization from the other side of the room, if you will, from the user-managed for the user-defined side of the room. So OAuth kind of fits partly in that bucket. It's more about access delegation. It's more about like the typical example I'll give, Vittorio, you know this better than I do, is I've got a Facebook account, I've got a Twitter account, and then I'm going to connect the two together. And Facebook is going to say, hey, will you, David, give me access to your Twitter feed so I can read your feeds, I can write to your feeds, I can update your profile. That's a typical OAuth use case where you're delegating access to one system on another system that you own. That's exactly what OAuth is for. Possibly in the in the consumer world, another great example would be if you wanted to connect your, your finance app say Mint or whatever to your different bank accounts, then you would not want to share your password. You would, not, you would want to do that OAuth flow. So OAuth, I think Ping Identity called it at some point the solution to the password and type pattern to be able to not have to share a password. So that's what OAuth is about, really. Right. And here I have to admit that I baited you a bit. <laughs> but the thing is that in my experience, so many people get their first exposure especially non-enterprise people, to the idea of authorization when they start using uh, off. And That's so the <laughs> man with the hammer syndrome ensues, and, uh, and now they start uh, uh, trying to solve every authorization uh, problem with off, which unfortunately, as we know, doesn't work because in the scenario that you just described with Facebook and Twitter, you are allowing a third-party client to access, like Facebook, to access your primary resource, which is Twitter. But what you can do with Twitter, like uh, if you'd be only looking at Twitter, the way in which you are authorized so that you can tweet from your feed, but not from mine, is not done through off. It's like Twitter needs to have found some other solution, Ackles or all the other stuff that you said. They yep. cannot use uh, off for that. Off comes into play only when there is a third party client. So that's what I was trying to bait you into. That's very true. So behind the scenes at Twitter, there must be code somewhere, somehow, that understands what the claims mean and, and let you do the authorization baked into the application. Absolutely. Totally right. Yes. And also, Vittorio, what you said is really interesting. You know, Developers get exposed uh, first through OAuth. That's, that's, I fully agree with that because at the end of the day, when you want to call APIs, the first thing you have to do in 99% of the cases is authenticate yourself. If you cannot authenticate yourself, you're not going to go any further. So never mind authorization. 
And yes, because now they're exposed to OAuth, they're going to start using the mechanisms that OAuth give you to do authorization. So essentially claims that you can put inside of your, your um, access token so that they can be processed by the resource server. And then what's going to happen is you're going to end up with the same problem you had with role-based access control, which is we called it role explosion. Now you can call it claims explosion or token bloat because you're going to end up with a token that has way too many claims with respect to what it is you wanted to do on the server. Absolutely. And lack of visibility. That's so very true. And the thing that drives me insane about this stuff is that this is a classic problem that emerges only at some scale. If you're doing your toy model, in which you're just doing your proof of concept, just to convince yourself that something works, you will probably not stumble into this because your test tokens are going to be small. But then you go in production with this thing and you discover the dude that belongs to... 385 uh, groups uh, with transitive closure. And so you end up with these tokens that uh, basically break your routers. So yeah, I'm so glad you brought it up. Yep. Great. So I don't want to abuse of your patience. You've been uh, super nice. So what do you recommend people keep an eye on today? What are the most interesting things uh, to monitor in the authorization space today? I think you want to keep an eye on things like Oso and Polar. So that's one company and the language that they use. It's interesting. You want to keep an eye on Open Policy Agent for sure and Rego and where that goes. Google came out with a model a few years ago called Zenzibar. And there's a couple of companies implementing it. And then a couple of companies, including, I think, of zero taking a spin on Zenzibar in, in, in Auth0 Labs to try and see how it can help with API security. So these are things you want to look out for. One that's close to my heart is Alpha, which is the abbreviated language for authorization, which is essentially a streamlined, simplified, JSON-like version of ZACMOL, if you will. So it's way easier to write for the developers than you know your traditional XML ZACMOL syntax would have been. So these are the, the things I would look out for. Um, I would also make sure that when you're implementing an application, you want to look at what that application framework gives you. Because we've talked about standards, okay? And standards are great. I love standards. But if you develop in one application framework that already has some pretty good or pretty okay authorization capabilities that are not standards-based, that are you know belong to the framework, then that could be good enough for you. A great example of that is Spring Security. So if you're developing in Java, and I know Java is a bit old school these days, but if you were doing a Spring app, there were or there have been some authorization, fine-grained authorization capabilities within Spring that help you do maybe 80% of what it is you, you want to do. So that's also a possibility, the non-standard route. I love the pragmatic angle. And so many times you hear cargo cult standard applications. And instead, I love your pragmatic approach as in there is something already there which does what you need, go for it. Fantastic. I 400% agree. So this was an incredibly interesting chat. I think that this space is enormous and so is your knowledge about it. So please expect the listeners of the episode to ask for specific drill downs, which probably means that I'll try to get you again on the show. For the time being, thank you so much for being so nice uh, to talk with us for a good uh, 30 minutes. Thanks, Vittorio. Great. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. 
Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Until the next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittor Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Walowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero. Copyright 2020, Of Zero Incorporated, all rights reserved.